Thessalonians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I have a couple of really brief announcements. Um, The 2012-2013 Pioneer Club year begins officially on September 19th. And if you have children involved in that, or if you want your children involved in that, they need to register. So even if they were registered for past uh, segments, they need to re-register for the segment starting on September 19th. And you could do that tonight in the youth room, or you can do it on Sunday morning after any of the services. Uh, For further information, you could talk to Barbara Solicito. And also, they are in need of a few volunteers for that when it begins. So... Uh, Be open, perhaps, to the Lord, putting it on your heart to be involved in that. Also, don't forget Harvest America this Sunday night here in the sanctuary, 7 p.m. Greg Laurie will be simulcast from Southern California, Evangelistic Crusade. Invite your friends and neighbors. And um, the, the Ladies' Bible Summer Series will resume this coming Tuesday evening uh, here in the sanctuary, 7 p.m. for you ladies. And that is it for your announcements, and you can open in your Bibles, if you have not already, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you need a Bible, just uh, lift up your hand, and the ushers will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. Now, if you've opened to 1 Thessalonians 4, you can also open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. The verses will be up on the screen, but you know, I know for me personally, I want to see it in front of me so that I can go home and read it later. I want to mark things, circle them, and, uh, you know, make notes and all of that. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 24 as well. Wouldn't it be great if the Lord came while we were talking about the Lord coming? In fact... How many of you, honestly, be honest, sincerely believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back during the course of the next 60 minutes? Honestly, if you really believe it, raise your hand. I'm so glad. Because Jesus said he's coming in an hour which you think not. (laughs) that makes this a good possibility you know ever since God created the world and mankind fell the heart or the question has existed in the heart of God's people of how will the world end. As the ministry of Jesus progressed and his disciples came to more fully understand who he was and what it is that he came to do, that same question was festering and growing within their hearts as well. Until the time that someone had the courage to come to Jesus and to ask him the question. And the text is the 24th chapter of Matthew, and it's in the third verse that they came to Jesus privately, and they asked him the question, saying, What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? That was the question that they asked him. They wanted to know, how is the world going to end? 
And for the next two chapters, Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, Jesus gives his answer. And essentially, the answer that Jesus gives to them is, it depends who you are. Depending on who you are, the end of the world is going to look different. And he answers from three different viewpoints, from three different scenarios. First, he gives them an answer, what the end times will look like according to the nations. And then, he gives them a second answer, what the end times will look like for the nation of Israel. And then he gives them his third answer, what the end times will look like from the viewpoint or perspective of the church. And in each one of those scenarios, there is an identifying sign that lets us know who he's talking to. Then there's a clear definitive scenario of what will take place. And then there's a definite conclusion at the end as it comes to a point. So the first part, the end times as it relates to the nations, he gives an identifying sign. He talks about all things that concern all people. Earthquakes, famine, pestilences in diverse places, you know. All things that are national, global in scale. And then he gives the scenario and he brings it to an end in verse 13. He says, then the end will come. And then he begins talking to the Jew, to the nation of Israel, and he gives his sign, all things that relate to Israel. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel set up in the temple, then let him that is in Jerusalem not flee or or flee, you know, into the mountains. Him that is on the house, all things that pertain to specific to Israel. And then he brings it to an end right around verse 30, giving the scenario of what it will look like for the Jew. And then from verses 32 all the way to the end of the chapter, he gives the third scenario, that is, the end times as it will be for the church. Now, it isn't our objective tonight to give a line-upon-line study of all of Matthew chapter 24. But because we are the church, we do want to know what it is that we're looking for, what it is that's going to happen, what does the end of the world look like to the believer in Jesus Christ, the person who is a part of the church. What does Jesus have to say? He begins there in Matthew chapter 24 in verse 31, but we're going to start in verse 36. We'll look at those four verses coming up to uh, that section most likely next week, verses 32 through 35. But let's look at verse 36 to understand what does Jesus have to say about the end times as it concerns you and me. He says, first of all, but of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, nor herald camping. Oh, wait, it doesn't, it doesn't say that. That was not in red letters. That was black letters, you know. But my father only. Now, that should be crystal clear anytime you hear someone say that they know the day or the hour that Jesus is going to come back, that they are wrong. Because Jesus tells us from his own mouth that there is no one that knows the day or the hour that that will come. But then in verse 37, he gives to us the sign. What things will look like. What the world will look like for the church in the day of his return. It says, but as the days of Noah were, 
so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The sign is that it will look out there much like it did in the days of Noah. Now you can go home tonight and you can read <coughs> excuse me, Genesis chapter 6. And you can see what it was like in the days of Noah. But you discover right there at the onset as the scene is being set for the great flood that came in Noah's day. That it says that the earth was filled with corruption. And it was filled with violence. And it was filled with sexual perversion of many different sorts. And it was filled with great wickedness. Those are the four marks of what society looked like at large in the days of Noah. And Jesus says that those are the things that will mark society as a whole in the days just prior to his return. That the earth will be filled with corruption and violence and perversion and great wickedness. That that's the sign. That's what you'll see going on outside. Then he gives the sequence in verse 38. He says, For as in the days of Noah that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The sequence will be this. It will be life as usual. Nothing wrong with marrying or giving a son or a daughter to be married to someone else. That happens every day. We've done it here in the church almost six times already this, this year alone. Nothing wrong with that. It's sanctioned by God. Eating and drinking. I mean, how many of us ate and drank before we came here to church tonight? The sign is that it will just be life as usual. That all of these things will be happening. That the, the culture will be eroding and being more corrupted And it will be happening without people even paying any mind to it. That life will just be going on as normal. And it will be almost imperceptible as to how corrupt things actually are. That that will be the sequence. That's what's going to happen. But then, after you know what's going on out there. And you know the mindset of the people that it will affect. Then he tells us what's going to happen. What is the end of the world going to look like? For the believer in Jesus Christ, the person who is a part of the church. He gives the answer in verse 40. He says, then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other will be left. That there will be a time where something so supernatural so unscientific, so unprecedented, takes place as God interrupts the course of human history, reaches in and snatches his own and takes them to be with him. They will be taken, Jesus said. It's an event that the Bible calls the rapture. That God will come and he will take his people out prior to the time when he pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. More on that next week. So if the red flags are going up and you're asking for expansion on that concept, just come back next week and we'll get into that a little bit more. But the event that you and I are awaiting is the rapture of the church when one is taken and the other is left. And then in verse 42, he gives to us the instruction that we're to have 
in light of what we're awaiting. He says this, verse 42. He says, watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. What we are told to do in light of what's coming, in light of what we know, we are told to watch. What does it mean to watch? It means this. It means to know what is coming. To be aware of what God is going to do according to what he has laid out in the scripture. And then also be aware of what's going on out there so as to, as best as you can, gauge the timing of when the event will happen in accordance to the sequence that's given. That's what it means to watch. Know what it says in here and then be aware of what's going on out there so that you know where you are on God's prophetic calendar. Now, we've already established no one knows the day or the hour. But of the times and the seasons, we're to be well aware. Paul's going to say that to the Thessalonians in the first verse of chapter 5. Again, what we will look at next week. In First Chronicles chapter 12, it's listing for us there the mighty men of David. And it talks about how many men David had employed by tribe that were his advisors, his warriors, the people that served within his ranks in his kingdom. And in verse 32, it talks about the sons of Issachar, and it says this. It says that they were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. That's great, isn't it? That is the perfect definition of what it means to watch. To have understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Israel means governed by God. How many in here desire to be governed by God? I want to be governed by God. I want him to be my Lord. We've called upon the name of the Lord. And so we're called to know what's going on so that we can be governed by God. We can make wise decisions based upon where we are on God's calendar. We're called to watch. Now, it stands to reason that if we are to watch, then we must understand what it is that we're watching for, right? You can't watch if you don't know what you're looking for. And so it serves us well to understand what this thing is that we're talking about, this event that's coming where the Bible says that one will be taken and the other is left. The first mention of this rapture that we're talking about here tonight is in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. In John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus is there, and he's at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were friends of Jesus. They resided in the city of Bethany. And the Bible tells us that Lazarus was sick, and that that sickness resulted in death, that he died, and that Jesus was then sent for, and Jesus, four days after the death of Lazarus, comes to the graveside where he's met by a shaken and stumbled and upset set of sisters, Mary and Martha. And they engage Jesus in this conversation about death and life and resurrection and things to come and eternity and all of these concepts that were so far beyond their understanding, but that Jesus was the embodiment of. And Jesus says these words in, in verse 23 as he sets the scene. He says that, says that Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. And Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, now listen, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's part one of Jesus' resurrection statement. He says, whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. But he takes it one step further in verse 26. He says this, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Now, it's easy for us to believe that if we die believing, that we will yet live. I mean, we, we understand the gospel. We know what we believe, what we profess as Christians, that Jesus came to give us life. And that he that hath the Son has passed from death to life. We understand that. But Jesus takes it one step further. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That is, those that are alive at that time will not die. And a much more challenging statement, as Jesus says, believest thou this? The first time this concept of the rapture, those that will not die, is mentioned there in John chapter 11. The second mention of it is in Matthew chapter 24, the scripture that we opened with, where he says one will be taken and the other is left. The third mention of this concept, this thing that Jesus is talking about is just a few pages in John. If you're in John, it's in John chapter 14 where Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Notice the language and how Jesus says that. He says, I will come, and then I will receive you, or take you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I will come, I will get you, and then I will take you to the place that I've prepared for you. And then he says, and whither I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so the first three mentions of this right there in the Gospels. John chapter 11 at the graveside of Lazarus. Matthew 24, when the disciples ask and say, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then just a few days before the crucifixion, when Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm coming. I will receive you that where I am, there you may be. Now, it's not mentioned again until Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul talks about this and he expands on it. He gives us more detail than what we got in the Gospels, more information concerning this event that we're talking about, this rapture, this taking, this snatching away that the Bible says God will accomplish in the lives of his people. The topic in chapter 15 is the resurrection of the believer. The entire chapter, Paul is point by point talking about this concept of the resurrection from the dead. 
And towards the end of the chapter, he comes to the point where the question is raised through his own discussion and discourse. What about those that don't die, that are alive at the end when Jesus returns? What about them? What does resurrection look for the, for the person who is living at the time of Christ's return? And he tells us a few things that we didn't know already. In verse 49, Paul says, And as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is, you and I, we, we have the flesh and the blood, the resemblance of man after the image of Adam. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, he says, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, now listen. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, something has to happen to us. Because what Paul is telling us is that these bodies that we currently indwell, inhabit, that, that we possess, or that possess us, these bodies are not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Congruent, they're not, you know, compatible, that's it. They're not compatible with the heavenly kingdom that we are to obtain. And so, therefore, something has to happen. As we have borne the image of the earthly, our flesh now, we must also bear the image of the heavenly. And so, though we won't die because Jesus is coming, notice what Paul says in verse 51. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery, a secret. He says, We shall not all sleep, which is the biblical term for death. We shall not all die. You might have die if you have a newer translation. He says, but we shall all be changed. In other words, we cannot go to heaven in these bodies that we now possess. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> I'm losing my hair. You know, the knees are wearing out. You know, it's like, Lord, please give me the upgrade, you know. And we can't go to heaven in the bodies that we have. So though, though we will not all die, we will all be changed or transfigured or glorified. We get an upgrade. We get a new model, a new body. That's a great promise. By the way, I believe, and you, you don't have to believe this, but I believe it enough that I'll share it with you. That the mansion that Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14 is not a crystal palace in the skies that's been custom made to your liking. But rather, I believe Jesus is talking about the body that we will possess in heaven. Throughout the Bible, our bodies are likened unto a tent or a tabernacle or a dwelling place. That's all this body is. And that's about as good as it is. You know, if you ever lived in a tent for any extended period of time, you understand. You know, they leak. They're insufficient. They don't keep the cold out. You know, they're, they're just not very good. And so also our bodies throughout the Bible, the tent, the tabernacle of this body. Our new body will be the difference between a mansion and a temple. You can argue with me on that if you want to. I won't argue. You, can, you win. You know, you can have a crystal palace. I want a nice body, you know. <laughs> but he says that we shall all be changed. And then in verse 52... He says how it will happen. This is how this taking, this snatching away, this rapture is going to take place. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that is, the, as fast as it takes, uh, you, when you turn your head, the light to just quickly flash off your, your eyeball, you know, as you're turning, just at the, the, the fraction of a second, you know, 
in that one moment, that instant, the twinkling of an eye, he says, at the last trump or trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. We that are alive and remain in that one instant, we will be done with this tent, this poor conditioned body that we have that's fallen and falling apart. And we will immediately be issued our upgrade as we receive from the Lord that body that he's prepared for us, that eternal habitation, that eternal inheritance that awaits us. We will be changed. For this corruptible, verse 53, must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And so Paul sheds light on this truth, this concept of the rapture, saying that we will not all die, but we must all be changed. It will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sounding of the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise. We which are alive and remain will be changed and this corruption will put on incorruption. And so Paul mentions in this resurrection chapter, this concept of the rapture. The last place in the Bible that the rapture is mentioned and talked about is in the book of Revelation chapter 4. And again, you can turn there or you can just look up at the screen. But in Revelation chapter 4, the rapture is seen in a most mysterious way. In chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle John, who's giving the revelation of what is to come at the end, he says these words, and I want you to listen very carefully. Put your spiritual antennas up. He says, after this, and the after this is referring to what he just said previously, which was seven letters to seven churches, which is the entirety of what the book of Revelation has to say to the church. It's in 2 and 3. And then he says, after this, that is after the church stuff is over, after this. What happens after the church stuff is over? After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now, put the pieces together of what John has just said. Immediately after God is done dealing with the churches, the first thing that happens is that there's a door that's opened in heaven. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 24 Verse 32, he said, know that when you see these things, that my coming is near, even at the door. Here, a door is opened in heaven. Well, what happens once the door is opened? He hears a voice, as it were, of what? A trumpet. And it says, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. And then notice there at the beginning of verse 2. And it says, and immediately. That is, in a moment. Immediate. The twinkling of an eye. He says, I was in the spirit. And the first thing he saw was the throne with him that sits upon it. In sight like unto an emerald and a jasper stone. It's the rapture pictured for us there in the book of Revelation, the culmination of God's dealing with the church. That's the last mention of the rapture in the scripture. 
But there is one passage that I skipped. You might know what it is. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, our text that we're looking at here tonight. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, from verses 13 all the way through verse 18, the Apostle Paul gives us this last passage in the New Testament that explains to us, that describes for us details about the rapture that we are awaiting. He says in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. That means dead. That you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, shall not prevent or precede those which are asleep, those that are dead already. We won't go first. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump or trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul gives to us some explanation about the rapture that we haven't seen in the other passages that give to us. Some of the things he says are things that we already know. There's similarities. We've heard the trumpet. We've heard of the catching up. We've heard of that. But there are some things here that Paul brings to our attention that are worthy of our exploration and attention as we finish our time together tonight. First of all, Paul tells us that this concept of the rapture, this doctrine that we're discussing, is to be for us something that brings us hope. Notice that in verse 13. He says there, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. The church in Thessalonica was going through great persecution. You know by now that they were in the fire. The things that they were going through were deep waters. And Paul is writing to them to encourage them and to strengthen them and to uplift them and uphold them in their faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's talking to them about the coming of Christ and he's seeking to inspire within them hope. You say, Nick, is really the only hope that we have in this life that we get to escape? Are you an escapist? Is the hope that we have as believers that there's just going to be an exodus someday and that everything in this life is just going to be this difficult and this hard until the time that Jesus comes? Is that our hope? Because, hey, Paul was hoping for the coming of Christ. Peter was hoping for the coming of Christ. Luther was hoping for the coming of Christ. Spurgeon was hoping for the coming of Christ. Billy Graham was convinced of the coming of... You're saying that that's my only hope. I'm only 40. I've got a long way to go. And if that's my only reason for hope, I mean, yeah, I hope he comes. Yeah, but it doesn't really encourage me that much. No, 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 no. Listen, that's not the hope of you and I. It is. I mean, that's the blessed hope that Paul wrote to Titus about, of the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior. But here's what Paul is getting at. 
is that this concept, the fact that he has determined the times, that it's all in his hand, and that he already knows the very moment when he's going to call us home, what it inspires in us is the understanding that all of our happenings are in his hand. You see, here's the point. You didn't, I mean, eternal life doesn't begin at the moment of the rapture. It's not like, okay, the trumpet sounds, we're caught up, now we're in heaven, and so now eternal life can begin. Now we can, no, 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 that's not how it works. Eternal life began for you and for me at the moment that we were converted to Jesus Christ. That's when eternal life began. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said these words. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That is, the moment that you trust on Jesus Christ for your salvation, at that moment, in the chronicles of heaven, you are transferred from death to to life, and your eternal life begins at the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, John writes again, and he says, This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. And so your eternity and my eternity doesn't begin at the moment that we're raptured, but rather our eternity begins at the moment we've put our faith in Christ. And therefore, if you believe in Jesus Christ here tonight, that means that you are already an eternal being. And because you are an eternal being, your hope is not in the moment that he will come and snatch you away and pull you out of here. Your hope is in the fact that all of your life belongs to him and every hair of your head is numbered and every one of your days is known and he has you. He owns you. He possesses you. And in Paul's conclusion of all that he's talking about here in chapter 5 of Thessalonians in verse 10, he says this. He says, whether we wake or whether we sleep, we are the Lord's. Sleep, again, it's that word for death. He's not talking about falling asleep. He's talking about when the believer passes. He says, whether we wake or whether we sleep, we're the Lord's. It doesn't matter. The psalmist declared in Psalm chapter 91, verses 9 and 10, he says, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the the most high, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. That when the Lord is your habitation, when your hope is in the Lord, not just the return of the Lord, but in the Lord who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who has your life in the palm of his hand, the same whether you're on earth in the furnace of affliction or whether you're in heaven in the palace of glory. That he has your life just the same. Charles Spurgeon said concerning this concept, he said, It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who is in such a case. He is secure where others are in peril, and he lives where others die. 
And that is the hope that you and I have. It's not that we're escapists, that we can't wait for Jesus to come and take us out of here. But rather, it's that he has us in his hand. And whether we wake or sleep, whether we're in affliction or whether we're in glory, whether we're in peril or whether we're in rest, we are the Lord's. And he has all of, our, all of us in his hand. It's our hope. And it's, and it's a strange concept, and I hope it doesn't bring confusion, but I was never a Trekkie. Any Trekkies in here? You know, Star Trek and everything? I was never that guy, but, but I saw enough Star Trek that I know this part of it. Remember when they would get, you know, beamed from the, the, the starship onto a certain planet, you know? And they would be there for a specific period of time. And they would have a specific mission to accomplish. And then once that mission was accomplished, they would be beamed back to the starship, you know. And, and, and really what happens, and this is our hope, it's not that we're going to be beamed out, but it's that we belong to the Father. And that our presence here on this earth is on purpose. There's a mission. There's something for us to do. And that he has those days in his hand. And when he's done with us, he's done with us. And that it isn't death. It's that he's pulling us back to where, we, where, where home is. That's our home. He's our home. And so it's a concept that brings us hope. That's what Paul is talking about. He also tells us there in verses 14 through 16 that there is order involved in this thing that will happen. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord will descend with a shout. And then at the end of the verse it says, And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain will continue. He says, the first thing that will happen is that the dead in Christ will rise. Well, I know the question that you're asking right now is, Hey, does the Bible teach soul sleep? Are we talking about, you know, the fact that those that are asleep in Jesus, those that have died in Christ, that they are in this state of limbo, this state of neutral, this unconscious rest that they're in awaiting for the resurrection? No, no, no. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's not a biblical concept, this idea of soul sleep. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also has given unto us the earnest of his spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul is telling us that to be absent from our bodies here, that is, to the point we die, we are immediately then brought into the presence of the Lord. Paul understood this for himself personally. You remember in the book of Philippians when Paul was there, and, and, and in, in chapter 1, Paul was talking to them about the choice that was before him. He had the choice to either die and to be with Christ or to stay and live in the flesh, which was more necessary and needful for them. And he says to them, what I'm going to choose, I don't even know. He says, I don't know what I'm going to choose, because to die is gain. It's better to be with him, but for you it's more needful for me to stay. Now listen, if soul sleep was real, then why would Paul not want to just stay with the Philippians there on earth? 
why would he say, well, hey, to, for me to live you know, is, is death and to die is gain. No, to live would be gain because he would be able to spend more time with them. Death would just be, hey, I'm going into limbo and a couple of thousand years from now when the trumpet blows, I'll be resurrected. No, no, no. Paul knew that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. You remember in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus, and it tells us that they both died. The one was taken into the presence of the Lord and the other one was in torment and they were both fully awake and fully aware of where they were. They were not in sleep or in limbo. They were conscious. And so the Bible doesn't teach this soul sleep. Well, then what does this mean when it says that the dead will rise first? The Bible teaches, the scripture indicates that it isn't until the time of the trumpet sounding, the time when the rapture comes, that it will be at that time that the glorified bodies, that the saints, those that have believed in Christ, will then receive their glorified bodies. You say, well, wait a minute then. That presents another question. Does that mean that those that are dead and in the presence of the Lord don't have their glorified bodies yet? Well, what kind of a body do they then have? Are they just disembodied spirits? I mean, what's going on? I mean, this is getting crazier and crazier with every passing minute. What's going on? All I know is this. Paul said again to the Corinthians, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for we know, and this is what we know, that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, this body, were dissolved, that we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. That means we're not going to be disembodied spirits. He says, for we that are in this tabernacle, this body, do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, that is, disembodied, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up from life. Now he that has wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also has given unto us the earnest of his spirit. In other words, no, we will not be disembodied spirits in heaven, that there is a house that's prepared for you. You say, well, how does that work? How is it that the dead in Christ will rise first at the trumpet, but yet the dead in Christ are already in the presence of the Lord and they are clothed upon? Listen, I don't know. I plead Deuteronomy 19.19, which says the secret, I think, actually, I think it's 28.28. It's one of those, you know, the secret things belong to the Lord. There are some metaphysical concepts of time and space that I don't understand. I could tell you what I believe, but I would confuse the daylights out of you. And so you can ask me later, you know. But there is an order to this thing. Here's what we know. These are the facts summing up this concept of order here. Number one is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That if you should die physically before the rapture of the church, you will be immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord. That was the whole picture that Jesus painted at the tomb side of Lazarus. When Lazarus came forth out of the grave, resurrected by Jesus, the grave clothes were taken off of him, and the state that he was given back to his sisters was as though death never happened. And that's true for you and for me. Death is not death, it's a door. 
And to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. We know that for a fact. We also know that we are not in his presence as disembodied spirits, that we will be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. But we also know that something happens at the trumpet. (laughs) And how it all works together, we'll have to wait and see. Because we don't understand fully how all of that works. But there is order in this concept of the resurrection. Well, in verse 17, he gets to the, to the jewel of it all. And he says, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. The word caught up that Paul uses there is the Greek word harpazo. And it means snatched away. In Latin, the word is raptus. It's where we get the English word rapture. It's the same thing. It's caught up, being caught away. And he says, that's what's going to happen. That's our destiny. It's what we're watching for, that we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now listen, this is, this thing that Paul has just said in verse 17, this is the second coming of Christ for the church of Jesus Christ. It is not the second coming of Christ in the classical sense of what the Bible says when he comes and sets his feet down upon the Mount of Olives. That happens seven years later. We'll talk more about that next week, you know, as we cross into chapter 5. So you say, wait a minute, does that mean that there's two second comings? Because I thought there was only one second coming. Wouldn't that make the next one the third coming? No, 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 no. The, The Bible doesn't give us that leeway, but here's what it is. The rapture is this. It's Jesus coming in the clouds. Got a visual, you know. For his church, and we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and then we'll be in his place. So the first aspect of the second coming is we are caught up in the clouds to be with the Lord. Then, seven years later, he comes back with the church. We are with him when he returns the second time. Jude says with ten thousands of his saints. That's you and I. And that's when he sets his feet upon the Mount of Olives. It's split in two. He walks into Jerusalem, goes through the eastern gate. You know, the, the blood is flowing to the horse's bridle. It's an insane scene, you know, as you read it there in the book of Revelation, you know. But the second coming for you and I, what we are watching for, what we are awaiting, is this moment when he will reach in and snatch away his people. This thing that's called the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the final thing that Paul tells us about the rapture in this passage there in verse 18, he says this. He says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And if you're taking notes, our final point is that this concept is supposed to bring comfort, not conflict. I recognize that people don't agree on all of the eschatological points that the Bible makes or that preachers propose or put forth. I recognize that there are variations and differences uh, uh, between or upon the importance of this topic. Is it important to talk about or isn't it? Or how much emphasis should be placed? Or perhaps the order of events, when things happen in relation to other things that are listed there in Scripture, you know, and there's this, this, there's this thing that happens. And here's what happens because of the conflict that comes forth because of this concept is that people choose, instead of hashing it out, working it out, figuring it out, they'll ignore it rather than understand it. Because there's conflict, because people don't agree, because there's some confusion, instead of understanding it, I'm just going to ignore it. Hey, did you hear what Paul said in verse 13? 
Look back up in verse 13 and read how Paul opens this passage. He says, but I would not have you to be ignorant. The root of the word ignorant is to ignore. In other words, Paul is saying, don't ignore this. It's amazing, there are three times in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul says, don't be ignorant. Do you know what they are? Number one is concerning the place of Israel in God's prophetic plan. That's number one. Number two is the power and the significance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And number three is concerning the rapture of the church. Those are the three areas where Paul says, don't be ignorant about this yet. When we look around the church today, what are the three greatest areas where the church is absolutely ignorant? Concerning the place of Israel and God's prophetic plan, the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit, and the rapture of the church. (laughs) Paul says, don't ignore this. Don't ignore this concept. Understand it. It's important. It's important that we understand this concept. Why? Here's why as we come to a close. Because 13 times in the Gospels, Jesus told us, not just his disciples then, but he told you and I, the people that would be alive in the last days, 13 times he told us to watch. It was a very powerful command. Some of the strongest language that was used by Jesus was used in this context of watching. Let me just read you some scripture. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, he says, Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched, and he would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, Jesus said, Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Mark chapter 13, verse 33, he says, Take heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work. And he commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye, therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at evening, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly, and he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily, I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready for the son of man cometh at an hour when you think not. And then finally, Luke chapter 21, verses 34 through 36. Take heed to yourselves. Lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfighting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, so that that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare it shall come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore. 
and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. You can't watch if you don't know what you're watching for. And so it's important that we understand the scenario. What's going to happen? What is Jesus telling us is going to take place in the last days? We're called, we're commanded to watch, to be aware, to understand. You say, this is great. It just sounds a whole lot more like Star Trek than it does Bible study. You're, you're saying something that's so so supernatural it's so unscientific it's so unprecedented i mean do you you hear yourself you're saying that people are just going to disappear i mean really nick really do you believe that do you believe really that people are just going to that right now half of us could just boom in the twinkling of an eye we'll just disappear and we're going to be gone Do do you really believe that jesus said it would be like it was in the days of noah There was one more thing about the days of Noah that we didn't mention that isn't right on the surface there in Genesis chapter 6. You know what it is? There was a man that was preaching a message saying that God was going to do something so unscientific, so supernatural, so unprecedented, so unknown or unseen by any generation previously. (laughs) Water is going to magically fall from the sky? (laughs) Pastor Noah? Hey, did you guys hear Pastor Noah? Pastor Noah saying that water is going to fall from the sky. Magical water. The Bible says that it had never rained prior to the days of Noah's flood. That the the earth was watered by a mist that came up from the ground. It says it in Genesis chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7. It says, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Moved with fear. Prepared an ark to the saving of his family. Is that Noah did something to prepare for something that God said was going to happen that there was no scientific evidence to support or to back having ever happened before. Noah's message was, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. And the message that I'm bringing to you tonight from the word of the Lord, it's going to rapture, it's going to rapture, it's going to rapture. God said it. And he's going to step in and fulfill the word that he has spoken. The question is this. Are you more like the culture in the days of Noah, unprepared and unready for his return? Or are you prepared like Noah, who it says prepared an ark to the saving of his family? Which side are you on? Are you ready for the Lord to come at this time? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your righteousness? Is your life in a place wherein Jesus would look and say, righteous? I'm not preaching works, but the warning, the resounding is clear from the mouth of Christ. Perhaps you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ personally. The Holy Spirit perhaps is speaking to you. Maybe you've been in a church 
Maybe you've been in a church your whole life and the messages come and go, but tonight for some reason the Lord's got your attention and you're listening to these things. You're hearing the testimony of Scripture. You're hearing the heart of a father who came the first time to take your place in judgment. And he's telling you tonight that he's coming the second time to take those that have received him to his place to be with him. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you tonight, it doesn't matter if the rapture is five minutes from now or if the rapture is 50 years from now. Tonight might be the night that Jesus Christ is calling you into a personal relationship with him so that your sins can be forgiven and so that your account can be settled in heaven and that when the rapture happens, you can be sure that you'll go with him. You say, oh, you know, I've got some time left to make that decision. I don't, I don't think we're right there on the cusp of Jesus' return. So I'm just going to, listen, you have a greater danger facing you right now, whoever you are, than missing the rapture. And here's what it is. The Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the call of God and that the response of God was that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I'm not saying that the rapture is going to happen five minutes from now or even five days from now and maybe not even five years or 50 years from now. But tonight, right now, the Lord might be speaking to you and saying, this is the time that my Holy Spirit is calling you to give your life to me. And this could be your last chance. You might live another 20 years, but your heart will harden and never again will God knock like he's knocking right now and call you to himself. And if that's you here tonight, I would not leave this place without settling accounts with God because Holy Spirit is speaking. and He wants to save your life. The Bible says that he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He came the first time to take our place. He's coming the second time to take us to his place. Next week, we'll talk about more about when these things will happen. I'm going to tell you the day and the hour next week. <laughs> Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. You said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Because servants don't know what their Lord does. But I have showed you all things that I am doing. And we thank you, Lord, that tonight we can open up the Word of God and we can read tomorrow's headlines. We can see what's coming upon planet Earth. And we can understand the destiny that we ourselves face. Father, I pray that we as a church, as a congregation, as a body corporately, that we would be ready for your return. That our lamps would be filled with oil, that our wicks would be trimmed, that our lights would be burning brightly that our hearts would be on fire for the things of heaven and that the things of this earth would be so dim, so dim to us, Lord. The word says that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask you, Lord, right now that you would pour out your spirit in this place, that you would excite us, that you would revive us, that you would stir up hope within us, and I pray for any that are here tonight that don't know you personally or that know you perhaps in word, but they know in their heart, Lord, they're not walking with you. They confess you with their mouth, but their heart is far from you. And I would pray that right now, Lord, your spirit would draw so close to each one of us. 
that right now we would have that one-on-one counseling session with you. And you would reveal the secrets of our hearts to us. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. And Lord, we ask that right now your Holy Spirit would search through our hearts. That you would sort out those passions, those priorities, those problems. And that you'd bring us into that place of absolute readiness and confidence, as John said, that we might be confident before him at his coming. I pray for those that are distressed. May they be filled with hope. And Lord, we pray, Maranatha, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.